Chapter 43, Martin Moves Nesson stood at the far end of the hall, his eyes glued to the door, as he waited for what felt like an eternity for someone to answer. Would Philippa even open it to a stranger? Would she recognize Mr. Cranley? Martin didn't have to wait long for his questions to be answered, as the door opened right as Cranley was going in for a second knock. It opened only a few inches, and from his vantage point, Nesson couldn't see inside. But he recognized Philippa's voice immediately. Yes, can I help you? Her voice asked innocently from behind the door. Are you Philippa Ingram? Cranley asked. There was a pause before the woman answered. Yes, that's me. I'm sorry, sir, but what is this about? Do you live in the building? I'm afraid I don't recognize you, she said, her voice now dripping with suspicion. I'd like to talk with you about Perry Penderwinkle, if you have a moment, he said. I, I'm afraid I don't know who that is, she responded. I think you must have the wrong apartment. I've got to be going. I, if you'll excuse me. She started to close the door, but Cranley's foot stopped it from closing completely. He put a hand on the door and stepped closer. Miss Ingram, it would be in your best interest if you opened this door. I'd prefer not to have to force it open, he said. I need to talk to you about Perry Penderwinkle and about your brother, Marcus. Please don't waste my time. The door slowly creaked open, and Cranley stepped inside, signaling back to Nesson to follow him. Nesson jogged down the hall and slipped inside, much to the shock of Philippa Ingram. Her shock quickly turned to a look of rage as she fixed him with a cold glare. I see, she said, and walked over to her armchair by the window. You're a friend of Martin's, then. Martin, I haven't seen you in a few days. I was afraid something had happened to you. I feared the worst, she said, barely concealing her contempt. Emboldened now by the company of Cranley, Martin replied, I'd like you to meet my associate, Mr. Cranley. He's an old colleague of Penderwinkle's and of your brother Marcus. Again, Nesson saw a look of brief surprise flash across Philippa's face before she regained her composure and offered Cranley a polite, though wholly unconvincing smile. She had been caught, and she knew it. Only her pride kept her from dropping the charade. Miss Ingram, I'll get to the point and save us all some time. I know that you posed as an intelligence agent in order to gain the trust of Mr. Nesson here. I know that you've likely had contact with Perry Penderwinkle, and I know, from Nesson's own account, that you've also been in contact with your brother Marcus Ingram. Your brother, whom I remind you, is an escaped convict he said. Now you're already in a world of trouble, but the sooner you cooperate with me, the better it will be for you in the long run. Your brother will be found, and he will be returned to prison. It's not a matter of if, but only when. If you want to interfere with our efforts to find him, I can promise you that nothing good will come of it for either of you. So, Miss Ingram, if you would, I'd like to know the current location of Perry Penderwinkle, Cranley said with finality. Philippa Ingram stared back at Cranley in silent defiance. She said nothing. Then she turned her head to look at Nesson, who stood a considerable distance behind Cranley, almost in the kitchen. Marcus was right about you, Nesson. You've been nothing but a nuisance. He should have gotten rid of you any other chance, Philippa said, 
any sign of friendliness or pretense in her voice now completely gone. The jig was up, and everyone knew it. Chapter 44, Penderwinkle's Past Plight As you know, Marcus, Marjorie and I met at university. We had both been tapped early for work in the service. For the first ten years we knew each other, however, neither of us was aware of the other's involvement. I was stationed in the central office, working on decoding and intercepting foreign correspondences. To all my friends, I was just Perry the Paper Pusher, working for the city government, issuing permits, processing documents, that sort of thing. The type of work that was generic and boring enough that no one asked too many questions. That was my cover for the first five or six years. Marjorie, alternately, was a field agent. She travelled extensively throughout Eastern Europe and now and then behind the Iron Curtain. Of course, to me and everyone else, she was a foreign aid worker. She had, in fact, trained as a nurse, and so it was not that far a stretch of the imagination to imagine her continuing such work in other countries. Perhaps that was what helped her to work so well as a field agent. She had practical skills she could fall back on and could enter more dangerous areas under the guise of a good Samaritan, working for various relief organizations. This part, I'm sure, is well known to you. By the time you reached the service, Marjorie was all but retired as a field agent, though her storied career was well known in our department and many others. She was, by all accounts, a model agent. You yourself, I'm sure, were in some of her classes when you first joined. Am I right? Penderwinkle asked, taking a brief interlude from his story. That's right, Marcus affirmed. I was in two or three, if I remember correctly. I studied the case files of a number of her past operations as well. She was quite thorough in her reporting, and they always said her handling of missions was something we should all aspire to. Yes, textbook, they'd often say of her missions. Nearly perfect, most of them. But that's getting ahead of the story, I'm afraid. As I said, there was a period of nearly ten years when neither of us were aware, or so I thought, of the other's involvement in the service. I do wonder now if she knew of my involvement earlier than I was led to believe, but that's neither here nor there. We were friends throughout our time at university, and we kept in touch after graduation. We shared a number of mutual friends and were always friendly, but were never too close. I think it was probably three or four years after university that we reconnected again at a friend's wedding. The two of us hit it off, exchanged numbers, and not long after began dating. Three years later we married. Even after our marriage it took another three and a half years before I learned that we both worked for the service. I've often wondered why we weren't informed by our departments that we had married fellow agents. I dare say it would have made our relationship much easier from the start. It's hard enough when one spouse is keeping secrets from the other, but when it's both of them, well, I'm sure you could imagine the strain. We almost separated two years in from the stress of it all. Both of us could tell that there were parts of each other's lives that we were in the dark about. I sometimes wonder how both of us kept all the lies straight. <sighs> Maybe we didn't. I can't remember any more. But I'm rambling, I'll get to the point. There was a day where I was called into a meeting with the head of my department, and when I entered her office, there was Marjorie. Needless to say, I was floored, and she seemed similarly shocked, though I wonder now if her surprise was less genuine than I imagined it to be. 
we were informed that each of us had been working for the service for a number of years, unbeknownst to one another, but that it was no longer necessary for this information to be concealed from us. As it happened, our two departments would more or less be combined, and so we'd be seeing each other quite frequently now anyways. My guess is that this was the only reason they told us, because it was unavoidable. Save for transferring us to separate departments, they had no other option. This was their only option. And so suddenly we were colleagues. We'd ride to work together, see one another at the office, and occasionally the two of us would even work together on the occasional operation. It was, for a time, a great relief to both of us, or so I thought. Life and work seemed easier, and the two of us were getting along famously in all aspects of life. No more lies, and finally, no more secrets. But that proved to be too good to be true. For a number of years, I felt as if I'd found the answer to all our problems. I no longer worried about keeping secrets, about whether or not I was being lied to. This carelessness, this... Naivete was my weakness when it came to Marjorie, and ultimately it proved to be my downfall, Penderwinkle said with a sigh. Marcus had known Perry Penderwinkle for more than a decade, but this was the first time he had heard most of this tale. It dawned on him how little he knew about his former colleague, about this man he'd once called friend. And while it was an interesting tale to hear, Ingram was still no closer to learning Penderwinkle's motive for murdering his wife. As if sensing Ingram's impatience, Perry cleared his throat and resumed the telling of his story. You see, while I thought all the lies and secrets were over, Marjorie was harboring her own secret. This was one that I think she'd held since not long after we met. I only uncovered her secret by accident one weekend when I'd planned to be out of town, I was supposed to fly to Paris for a conference, but at the last moment I became ill at the airport, right before boarding my flight. I called the office to let Marjorie know, but she'd already left for the day. When I tried the house, there was no answer there either. I took a cab back to our flat, but she had not returned yet. I had been struck with a sudden and violent stomach flu, and did not want her to catch it, so I made a bed in the spare room and fell right asleep. I wonder now if I'd had the forethought to place a note on the counter to let her know I was home. Perhaps her secret would never have been revealed. I'd have been none the wiser, and maybe we would have continued living that way forever. But fate, or God, or the universe, whatever you want to call it, had other plans. I fell fast asleep and slept without disturbance until late in the evening. I don't remember the time, though I'm sure it was well past midnight. I recall rolling onto my back, still feeling quite dreadful, and trying to negotiate with my stomach to calm down so I wouldn't have to get up and make a trip to the toilet. But then, I noticed a sliver of light coming in under the doorway. A light was on in the living room. What's more, it sounded as if the television was on. Marjorie was up, I thought, unable to sleep. In that moment, I remember hoping that she wasn't suffering a similar fate as me doubled over on the living room floor as her stomach twisted and churned and burbled. I made up my mind to get up, which in my state was no small feat. I nearly passed out the moment I stood up, so great was my initial dizziness. But then my head cleared. Placing one cautious foot in front of the other, I shuffled to the door. It was right then, as I went to open the door, that I recognized Marjorie's voice. And then there was another woman's voice I didn't recognize. 
followed by a man's voice that I couldn't place but that sounded eerily familiar. It occurred to me that I hadn't heard the television but people talking in the next room. It was not uncommon for us to entertain guests, but I thought it odd that Marjorie would be entertaining at such a late hour. She was always one of those early-to-rise, early-to-bed sort of people. This seemed very out of character for her. And then there was the tone of their voices. All three of them, Marjorie included, were speaking very quickly and very intensely. They sounded almost as if they were arguing, though I couldn't be sure. I've saved the most important piece of information for last, as it was the most alarming to me. It was not English they were speaking. Perry took a dramatic pause before continuing. It was Russian. Marcus Ingram's eyes went wide. He was unable to conceal his amazement, which he could tell gave Perry no shortage of delight. You're not going to tell me that Marjorie was... KGB, Penderwinkle finished for him. Yes, I'm afraid so, and as I was soon to find out, she had been for quite some time, maybe from the beginning. Marjorie, Marcus said aloud, his voice frozen in a look of disbelief. Perry, if this is some sort of... He trailed off. You can't expect me to believe that your wife was a traitor? Was a double agent? Perry asked. Believe me, Marcus, no one was more shocked than I was. I came up with a dozen, maybe a hundred reasons why it could not be true. But it was true, no matter how hard I tried to convince myself otherwise. But what did you do? What did you say to her? Marcus asked desperately. Continue your story, Perry. This part, I'm afraid, is not the dramatic denouement you're hoping for. Life is far less sensational than that, Marcus. You see, in that moment I was a coward, and I did nothing. I stood behind the door for a moment, trying to make out more of what they were saying, and then I got back in bed and lay there until I fell asleep. I told myself it was because of my illness that I chose to do nothing that night. In reality, I think I was not ready to face the truth. Marjorie had been lying to me for years, but I was also lying. Lying to myself, Perry said with deep regret. But surely something happened. You confronted Marjorie, spoke with her in the morning, Marcus asked. The next morning I slept in very late, and when I awoke, my door was open. Marjorie was milling about the kitchen. She was furious with me for coming home without telling her, especially, she said, due to the fact that I was feeling so dreadfully ill. A nice cover for her, certainly, but I could see the fear in her eyes as she asked me when I'd come down with my sickness, when I'd gotten home, why I hadn't called, and, most importantly, if I'd been able to sleep through the night. You should have seen the relief on her face when I told her I fell asleep around six or seven and slept like a log through the night, never waking once. It was what she wanted to hear. And once she felt assured that I had no knowledge of the previous night's goings-on, things went more or less back to normal. I did speak with her eventually, but not the next morning, or the morning after that. I was paralyzed. I could not comprehend such a betrayal, or wrap my mind around such a scenario. My wife, a spy for the KGB, I would not believe it, not at first. And so I pretended as if the incident never happened, and I tucked the memory away in the back of my brain. I lived this way for almost a decade. 
You can't be serious, Perry, Marcus interjected. A decade you sat on that secret for ten years without telling anyone, not a soul. Not a soul, Marcus. Maybe I believe that if I just moved on and never thought of it again, that I'd eventually forget the memory completely. That, however, proved not to be true. The harder I tried to suppress the memory, to push it aside or dismiss it, the stronger it came back. It nagged at me. It ate away at my conscience. I could never relate to Marjorie the same again. Just like years earlier, the secrets we held between us were acting as a wedge, prying us further apart, inch by inch, day by day, year by year. We both, I think, gave up after a few years and resigned ourselves to the fractured relationship we found ourselves in again. We both knew that we'd never be able to love one another like we had before, and so we were alone together, in the same office, in the same house, in the same bed, but living separate lives, Penderwinkle explained. But what was it then that caused the incident that night, Marjorie's murder? Marcus interjected. Something must have happened. If you'd lived with this secret for ten years, what was it that night that would make you do such a thing? In spite of it all, Perry, you must have still loved her. If not, why would you keep this horrible secret of hers for so long? Were you not trying to save her? Protect her? Marcus asked sympathetically. At first I would have agreed with you that I loved her, was trying to protect her from the danger I knew she'd be in if her secret came out. I think I did love her, in answer to your question, at first. But as the years went on, that love turned to resentment. I resented her for the betrayal of trust. I resented her for making me the keeper of her secret, which I never asked for, and I believed she was wrong and a traitor. In the end, I only continued to keep quiet because I was afraid of implicating myself. It's one thing to turn someone in for a crime a few days after witnessing it, but an entirely different thing to let someone go on committing crimes against the state, not least of all treason, for over a decade. I could no longer consider myself innocent. There was blood on my hands, too. I may as well have been an accomplice, Perry said bitterly. He stopped speaking, coughed twice, and then looked to Marcus pleadingly. Could I have a glass of water, Marcus? All this speaking has made my throat quite dry, he confessed. And, he coughed again, I'm afraid I've got something tickling the back of my throat. I suspect it's all the dust down here, he said as he let loose another fit of coughs. All right, Ingram replied, getting up from his chair. I'll be right back. As he turned and made his way up the steps, Ingram thought about the man behind him tied up in a chair in the basement of this old house. The man who'd framed Marcus for his wife's murder, who'd sent Marcus to prison. And yet, as he listened to Penderwinkle's tale, he couldn't help but sympathize for the old man in some strange way. Penderwinkle had lived over a decade, according to him, concealing the secret of his wife's treachery from everyone. But even after hearing Perry's story, Marcus still couldn't wrap his head around the idea of Marjorie Penderwinkle as a KGB spy. Yet if it was true, as Perry claimed, what a blow it must have been. How Penderwinkle could even function in his day-to-day -day life was impossible for Marcus Ingram to fathom. If I had been in his shoes, 
Marcus thought as he made his way into the kitchen. I think I'd have lost it. I think I would have snapped. Marcus Ingram pondered these new revelations as he filled up a glass of cold water for his prisoner downstairs. What a tangle web you've weaved, Perry Penderwinkle. You've caught us all in your trap, and now even you yourself can't escape it. Ingram turned off the faucet and headed for the basement door. It was time to go back down. Time to hear the rest of this tale.